You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Thursday, May 3rd, 2018, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santa Maria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. Hey, do you guys know what tomorrow is? Of course. What's tomorrow yes. is? May the 4th be with you. Of course. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Star Wars Day. Year. Star Wars Day. That was just last year. <laughs> I, I don't understand why they're releasing the Solo movie, the Han Solo movie, in May, and they're not releasing it on May the 4th, which is also a Friday, which is not a perfect no, right? release wow. date. Wow. It's got away with schedules and I'm stuff. I'm sure they tried. You know? I'm sure they tried. You, you they, they're, they're going for the long weekend with it. Yep. There is absolutely somebody in my neighborhood. So we, we, you can get vanity plates in California like you can anywhere, but they look really cool in California because they're like black with yellow lettering. And I got one recently for my car that spells talk nerdy because I am vain apparently. Sweet. But um, there is totally a guy that lives in my neighborhood who has a vanity plate that says Han YOLO. <laughs> oh my god on yolo <laughs> yeah, he drives the tesla it's amazing <laughs> and of course the day after that the day this podcast goes up is cinco de mayo which oh, yeah. is more importantly the anniversary of the release of the first episode of the sgu yes how really? many years Steve? Whoa, that's yes right. 13 13 years yes. we're teenagers wow. now i love it guys that's crazy <laughs> yeah. yeah i have are some updated numbers how many total downloads ever do you think we've had of the SGM? 99 million. 99.9 9 million. 98, 98 million, 999. 100 million. 104 million. Whoa, we broke it. Awesome. 573. That's, that is cool. Uh, I tell Holy you. Price is right, rules, I win. Kara, <laughs> <laughs> obviously you weren't there, but in our first year, we were talking mm-hmm. a little bit about numbers early on and- how wonderful it would be to, you know, achieve thousands of listeners, you know, get into the single digit <laughs> thousands that that would be quite a remarkable feat for us. We were just a little local skeptics group at the time, essentially. Yeah. hundred million. Yeah. Wow. We, we impressed easily back then. Yeah, we never would have thought. <laughs> well, right? back in the day, you know, we had no idea. We just really didn't know it was going to it was going to go on for this long and that we would have such loyal listeners and just, you know, we just love doing it. You know, we, we, we get such a wonderful response from our listeners via email and when we meet people in person. I remember we, we did, what, the 10-hour show last year and, and um, I don't know about you guys, but I committed to another five years. And then I, I forget when this happened. At some point, Steve said, yeah, we'll just keep doing this until we die. <laughs> <laughs> well, crap. why not? That is what I you signed know? up for, isn't it? SGU by death by SGU. <laughs> That's the only way out. <laughs> Kara, it's like a Supreme Court appointment. You're there. Once you're in, you're in. Actually, right. wait, I only have to stay on the show until most of you die. That's well. right. <laughs> Sorry to get more. Why are we talking about that? <laughs> well, I, I plan on having an extended lifespan, Kara, so it'll be me and you at the very end. It'll All be right. Jay's head and you, yeah. Kara, at the end. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> well, we're Sounds gonna good. shift the show a little bit though, Steve, and we're not gonna tell you how, but we've been talking about it. What it also shows is that we've broken through, I think, to certain parts of the world where I don't know that we've really ever in our wildest dreams expected to to reach mm-hmm. out. You know, places oh, like yeah. chi- China, audiences in Russia, Saudi uh, Arabia, not not a lot of non English speaking countries that we do have a presence in, and that it's just it's just remarkable to think about. Yeah, and in October, our first book is coming out, our eponymous book. Mm-hmm. Right, Kara? Yes. Yeah, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. And uh, yeah, October 2nd, 
if you look on our Facebook page and Jay, we're we're going to put up a page on our website, right? Just with links to all the places where you could pre-order the book. Yep, we're working on that right now. And I under, as of today, the book is going to be distributed also in China, Russia, and the UK. See that? Uh, yep. How exciting! Yeah, we're working on Australia just to see if it, we can reach out to any publishers there. But so far, things are going great. It's a ton of work. It's still a lot of work, but it's worth it, obviously. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Can't wait. It's so exciting. Like the, the hardest part is kind of behind us, at least for this book. And so now we get to like do all the fun stuff. Yeah, for you guys. You know, I'm still knee deep in <laughs> editing the book. <laughs> well. Well, your name is in the big letters. Yeah, you're the yeah, captain. I know. Yeah. No, I know. <laughs> That's true. You know, if the, if the big name on the book was Jay Novella, I would be done with the book. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> That's why she gets the big bucks. <laughs> Do you know what else is starting next week, next Monday? A cool TV show. Oh, what? wait. My episodes of Bill Nye Saves the World are going to come out on May 11th. Little plug there. Nice. Cool. I'm in nice. season nice. three. Nice. You can check Can't them out. Wait. Next Monday, or as in two days from now when this podcast goes live, I go back to school for the semester. Uh, <laughs> Say goodbye to my social life. You had, you had one? It's all part of the big plan. Guys, if you enjoy the work that we do on ESGU, you should really consider becoming a patron of ours on our Patreon. We have a, a lot of goals you know, behind the scenes. We're all always talking about things that we want to do, but there is a, a huge limitation for us, and that's usually time. What you can do as a listener and someone that appreciates the show is if you become a patron, you will afford us the ability to spend more time on the show. And another big thing is that we're going to be able to do more targeted outreach. As an example, we want to get into... Uh, curating a science news page where we would have control over the, the quality of news reporting on science topics and, of course, skepticism. I think that that could actually, you know, be hugely beneficial to people that are looking for reliable sources, you know, things, links that they want to share, things like that. Yeah, but of course, all this stuff takes so much time. And when you have a day job, time is money. It really is. And that's why support from listeners like you is is so incredibly helpful because, of course, it's free to download the SGU. Anybody can listen to it anytime they want to. And I really like that. I mean, I think it's really important that anybody who maybe isn't in a position to pay for this content can still access it. No problem. But when people are in a position to help support it, it makes it so that we can continue to make that great free content for everybody. And we're always looking for uh, premium content to give our supporters. Mm-hmm. And we, we produce it all the time. But they let us know if there's anything in particular you'd like to see. Within reason, people. Or even unreasonable. <laughs> just anything. Just, hey, let us Keep know. Keep it clean, people. Keep it May clean. May not get it. <laughs> so to see a list of the perks or, or the rewards that we offer our patrons, you can go to patreon.com forward slash skeptics guide. I'll tell you right now, we have a discord server. And if you don't know what that is, it's a collection of, of chat rooms. Uh, there are textual chat rooms and there's also voice chat rooms that we have. And we have a, a wonderful community there. Now, we also have, of course, the, the SGU forums, which is a great community, but there's a, you know, very much, you know, minute by minute activity on the Discord. People are actually becoming friends right before our eyes. And we're, as an example, like for Nexus this year, we're going to have a get together for people, for our patrons that are on Discord. Um, you don't have to be on Discord if you're a patron. But the bottom line is, like, it, we really are developing an SGU community right before our eyes, and we're having a great time doing it. You know, we all, you know, jump on there whenever we have free time to chit chat with people. So go to patreon.com forward slash skeptics guide and help support the SGU. Yeah. 
Jay, that reminds me. I'm like logging on to Discord right now. Just said hi to everybody. <laughs> hey, guys. <laughs> I'm going to talk about you behind your back during the show. You can't because I can see it. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice try, Karen. Damn, I shouldn't have said that. What would you Log in as someone said? else. <laughs> All right, Karen, don't get too distracted because you got to start us off with what's the word. So this week we are going to talk about the word da, 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 fallacy. That's a oh, good word, right? right? We all know that, that word. word. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Important. But we Never all know. know that word. What is the poi? No, it's true. We do know what the word means, but we don't necessarily know where it comes from. And we don't, I think, often talk about some of the some of the specific ways that the word can be used. So what is a fallacy kind of in common parlance? It's a, it's bad logic. Faulty reasoning. Screw it. Faulty reasoning. Bad logic. Yeah. Even just a mistaken idea, just like, you know, a fallacious idea, right? We, we use the term really broadly, like that's false, that's a fallacy, but we also use it much more specifically in, in logic, in philosophy, which is a, a faulty idea based on like an invalid argument or an invalid inference. And so when we start talking about how logical fallacies work, these these mistaken beliefs that come from unsound arguments, there are different ways to slice and dice logical fallacies. We talk about them on the show all the time. We even have a segment called Name That Logical Fallacy. Um, But did you know that usually when we're talking about these fallacies on the show, we're talking about, as Steve points out, informal logical fallacies. Yep. That's so cool. there are a lot of informal mm-hmm. fallacies, you know, off the top of our head. What are some that you guys can think of? Argument from authority, appeal to nature. False oh, dilemma, false equivalence. Field um, of emotion. Uh, the, gambler's uh, fallacy. No true Scotsman. Absolutely. Straw man. Special oh, pleading. Yeah, all these things. Um, non sequitur. Bob, I'm so glad that you mentioned non sequitur because that's actually kind of a blanket term, even though now we usually use it to mean something that's a little more specific. Like what you just said doesn't make sense. It came out of left field. What a non sequitur. What it right, actually, like Nomad says, like yeah. Nomad says, non sequitur, your facts are uncoordinated. Your facts are exactly. <laughs> that's so good. That's so I love good. that line. I love that. Um, but really, it, it just translates to it does not follow. So um, it's sort of an umbrella term for all of these different informal fallacies that we usually talk about. But informal fallacies have to do with the content of the argument, generally speaking. Formal fallacies are kind of content independent. It's whether or not the math rules are going the right way. The taxonomy of the fallacy is actually following. So, you know, let's say if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. If you start to break down some problems with that, or if A and B are the same, if B and C are different, then A and C are different. Or or sometimes you'll maybe make the opposite claim, which is in and of itself incorrect, simply because that's not the way that the logic follows. So there's a lot of different ways that you can break it down. Have any of you taken a logic class, in, like a philosophy class? Yeah, of course. Logic? I did okay. uh, yeah, way back college. Yeah. I love that you I guys all it. said yes. I like that you thought about it, Bob. That's a that's a good old college try. <laughs> hey. Because and even Jay, I love that you said, yeah, of course, because I don't think most students take these classes unless they choose to like minor in philosophy. Yeah, I agree, Kara. You know It's it, a bummer. It just seems like an obvious thing, like expose yourself to philosophy. Yeah, so that you can figure out how to make a valid argument, right? Mm-hmm. Where does this word, this like false statement, even this deception, where does it come from? Oh, Would you think it's Greek the or word Latin? Word false. Oh, um, 
Fallacy is definitely Latin. Latin. Yeah, <laughs> it's definitely Latin. And it really does uh, come from these roots that mean like phalaire or phallus, which mean like to deceive or it, it's invalid. It seems like in the 15th century is when it was first used in kind of the modern sense, in the philosophy sense, which is funny because we think of these this classical philosophy as being much, much older. But not until then did the word fallacy really come into the kind of structure of a logical argument. But the there were earlier forms dating back even hundreds of years before that. I feel like I should bring up more related words because this happened recently. We did vagility. Do you guys remember vagility? Fragile yes. animals yes. Yep. are free to roam. And then somebody wrote in and talked about the vagus nerve. And they were like, that's the wandering nerve. And I was like, shut yeah. up. That is so cool. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I love it when those things come together. So obviously a very related word to fallacy is the word fail. They come from the same root. Mm. So a failure of logic in a way is a logical fallacy. And we talk about them all the time on the show. So continue to tune in because we will continue to get an education on that. Steve's great at springing those on us. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of vigility, Kara, when I was listening back to that show, I can't believe that you said vagile organism yeah. and nobody picked up. I know. I, I, well, yeah. yeah. You know, just to, chose not to comment? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure everybody thought it, but you were very mature. I'm very proud of you guys. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that is, right. it is well, actually amazing. It's <laughs> it wasn't, nothing was edited out. I think everyone just was like, nope, not doing it. <laughs> Too easy. All right, thanks, Kara. Yep. Jay, yes. you're going to tell us about the Earth's magnetic fields flipping back and forth like crazy. <laughs> like crazy. <laughs> I saw it in a movie once. The Earth's magnetic field, guys, it is not a constant. No, it's not. I uh, I don't remember ever being taught that in school. I know. Like right now, where the where the North Pole is, it's relatively. Consistent, but even right now it moves. It moves around a little bit. Yeah, you're talking. You know, you remember. Yeah, like you said, you're talking about magnetic north as opposed to geographic north. Yeah, we're talking about north. where the, the actual magnetic pole is. Yeah, it wanders. Okay. And did you guys know that you know the the magnetic north pole has swapped places with the magnetic south pole? Right. You know that this has taken yeah. place. I yes. did yep. know that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in fact, that I was taught in geologic history, it's it's actually considered a common occurrence. Now, of course, when I say the word geologic, I'm talking about huge spans of time, not in a human lifespan. But you know, the Earth is very old, and the last time the poles swapped places was almost 780 thousand years ago. So what we're seeing now, since scientists have been studying and tracking the magnetic poles over the last hundred years, is that the Earth's magnetic field has grown detectably weaker. Now, when I say detectably, I didn't, make sure you don't confuse that with significantly, but we can detect that in certain areas, the magnetic field has grown weaker. The question is, are there changes, are, are these changes a sign that the Earth's magnetic poles are going to flip soon? This is what we really want to know. In a recent study, researchers have concluded that Earth's magnetic field is probably not reversing. In fact, that's the title of the paper. Earth's magnetic field is probably not reversing. <laughs> <laughs> but they mean like – they don't mean ever. They mean like now. Now, yeah. They Just mean now. like soon or imminent. Just now. Just now. Now, I don't know about you, but I try to guess how I, – I was thinking about this. How the hell do we know – when the Earth's magnetic field had a significant change? Like how, what, what are people doing to study? What are they looking at? 
I mean, Isn't it about like ore? Fossilized, yeah, like fossilized iron metals in in rocks and stuff. Right? Yes, yeah, exactly. exactly. This is this guys is this is why I love science. It turns out that whenever rock is formed due to sediment deposits or, or volcanic eruption, whatever, the Earth's magnetic field actually moves tiny particles of magnetic substrate so they line up within the new rock. And when the rock hardens, those magnetic particles that lined up, they kind of get locked in place, right? Think about it. It cools, it hardens, and now those particles can't move like they, they could when it was more of a liquid. Scientists can read a rock's magnetic signature and deduce the orientation of the Earth's magnetic poles at the time the rock formed. And there you have it. Now, you can imagine— we got some old rocks. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course, all yeah. over the world. So you, you can imagine that in order to get a true picture of Earth's magnetic field, you know, a million years ago, the researchers had to take samples from around the globe because they need, you know, they have to age the rocks and they have to go, okay, we have all these rocks globally. We know what position they were in. We know where they're from. And what they do is they examine this collection of rocks and they're able to read data on the strength of the magnetic field and the orientation of the field from the rocks. The researcher, researchers can then create a global model where they reconstruct an estimated version of the Earth's magnetic field. Well, in this instance, the last two times the poles flipped. So in this recent study, they looked between 30,000 and 50,000 years ago. Now, earlier when I said that the poles haven't changed their orientation in, what, 780,000 years, that was only mostly true. About 41,000 years ago, the last champ event occurred where the researchers mostly found— Mostly dead. What, Bob? Mostly dead. Though. I know, right? I thought of that too when I read it. <laughs> so, I can't help it. I can't help it. So 41,000 years ago, an event occurred called the Last Champ event. And this is where the researchers found evidence that the poles reversed for only 500 years. They also determined that the poles significantly shifted positions before clicking back to where we're accustomed to where they are now. You know what that's called, Jay? What? That's called an excursion. So the full um, magnetic field reversals happen maybe two to three times per million years. So that when you're talking about 700,000 years ago, you're talking about the last reversal. Yeah. But for every reversal, there's on average about 10 excursions. An excursion is where the magnetic field wanders. La, 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 la. For, <laughs> yeah, for hundreds of years, it may like its position may wander. It may actually get all the way to the other side. So it's kind of a, a reversal, but yeah. it, it's, it's short lived, only hundreds of years. And that's what you're talking about. These were excursions that have happened hmm. recently. Yeah. And they happen. So, and the, but the, yeah, the, like you said, they last hundreds of years, but in geologic terms, that's a blip. Yeah. Just blip, blip, yeah. You know what I mean? So, blip, blip, just like that. So, la, 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 these la. events that we're talking about are not what we're detecting today. And this is the important realization from the study. The current mm -hmm. state of the poles is considered to be strong. Even though we are currently measuring one area of the magnetic field being weakened, the researchers don't believe that this is indicative of an imminent flip. Uh, they would expect to see several weak areas around the globe, you know, not just the one that we're, we, we currently see. Yeah, or – so yeah, it's not – they say it's not the beginning of a reversal or excursion, which is important. It's not even one of these lesser excursions, again, which we care about because during either a flip or an excursion, the magnetic field can decrease to between 0 and 20 percent of its normal strength. Zero percent. Yeah, and that's so. Wait, that, that, what happens? Like, what? Are, what are oh, I'll tell you. I have happens? I have an interesting list. I cover that real okay. quick. But let me just let me just finish Better. this because this is I didn't know this either, and I found this this very 
very cool to know. Now, historically, the magnetic field around the equator reverses shortly before the entire planet does. So, so importantly, they're also not seeing that that's happening right now. Let's talk about this. So over the last 20 million years, the poles have flipped every 200 to 300,000 years. Uh, and that rate has not been a constant since the Earth was created. It's more of a recent geologic trend. But it's, it's pretty reliable when, they, when they, we go back, you know, millions of years, we could, we could see this happening reliably. So what would happen if the poles did suddenly do that flippy flippo? And this is what happens. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Carrie, you're sitting, right? Yes, I'm, I'm sitting. I, yes. This is going to upset you. Stand up. I've been waiting for this the whole talk. Tons of compasses (laughs) compasses will will not work the way you expect them to work. Well, yeah, that's like the obvious one. The global (laughs) compass network will won't work, guys. The compasses. Yeah, obviously. It's terrible. (sighs) No. The scary thing. Uh, and Steve, Steve was alluding to this. The scary thing is that more cosmic rays will be allowed to enter the Earth's atmosphere because the weakened magnetic field. You know, it's not there. It can't protect us yeah, like it does like at the strength. I know. That it's sucks. Scary. And they, they're saying that it could cause DNA damage. And scientists think that this could spike the rate of mutations. And they call this, semi-jokingly, the geomagnetic apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Now, also, <laughs> awesome. any animals that use the Earth's magnetic field for navigation, including birds and yeah, salmon yeah. and sea turtles, they could suddenly not know where Dumb they beetles. are or how to migrate. And that's not good. Mm-hmm. That's um, not good. But, you know, but... People are saying, though, that they would figure it out, of course. I mean, it's, it's it, assumed that they do. The, irradi- the radiation levels could also affect the electric grid and some lesser protected spacecraft that weren't developed to have a higher level of protection. Um, but there is one cool upside. Auroras will be visible from a much lower latitude. Oh, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Hey, our mutated DNA will love that. Yeah, we can actually <laughs> see in different color spectrums, Ev. That's right, <laughs> that's with, my third, works, with my right? third eye. No, I, I have a theory here. You have a hypothesis, Jay. I have a <laughs> hypothesis. You're right. Thank you, Hypothesis. My <laughs> hypothesis welcome. is when the poles flip, we all could fly. I don't. Mm-hmm. What is that uh, based on? You can't like prove that, that. You never know. You don't think the Neanderthals could fly? No, oh, I don't yeah. think oh. that the Neanderthals They have fixed-wing aircraft, no uh, doubt about it. Look, I can dream, okay? <laughs> all right. Thanks, Jay. Bob, you're going to tell us about self-assembling space telescopes by that massive conspiracy organization, NASA. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, NASA has released uh, the list of winners of Phase 1 research money for their awesome NIAC program, or NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts. Or so they say. We've talked about this uh, before. (laughs) Um, So this includes plans for extremely large space telescopes that that self-assemble in space. And there was another award winner, another one that won Phase 1 money, and I had to include them as well, Steve, because this was just way too cool. And uh, the other one was uh, beamed propulsion to accelerate relatively large probes to 10% the speed of light. So that's oh, a cool. Oh. That's a that's a cool one too. If you can't tell, I love NIAC. It's just a, the idea of rewarding these ideas that are just totally out of the box. At least for the year that you're in, it's like they're rewarding sci-fi sounding ideas that would be at home at the in the Expanse TV series. But they, they you just can't throw any idea out there. These have to be supported by initial calculations, and then uh, if it if it seems promising, that the, then you can get one hundred twenty five thousand dollars and nine months to show how feasible the concept really is. So that's when you really you really work on it and show, okay, we had these initial calculations that looked promising, but let's really dive in and just see how well, how good this actually, or could this thing really work? And if, the, if it all goes well, then you get phase two funding, which could be uh, become available up to uh, like a half a million uh, USD, and then you get 
two, two more years, two full years of research and development to, to continue it. So one of the, uh, the, the uh, ones that interested me or piqued my interest the most was this uh, self-assembling telescope. So this is a, uh, the team led by Dmitry Severansky, uh, who's, who's an assistant professor of mechanical and aerospace engineering at Cornell. So his concept involves a swarm of modules in space that join together like Voltron to form a 30-meter telescope with adaptive op- optics to boot, which is nice. So the idea is that they would launch individually and head towards the Sun-Earth gravitationally balanced Lagrange point uh, using solar sails. And then there, they would essentially join together and then probably even use the solar sails as a sun shield. But uh, so that, of course, that sounds amazingly ambitious. Uh, but why would we even bother trying to even do it that way? Well, you've all heard of the James the James Webb Telescope that's going to be launched in, in about 2020, I think, is the I most know. current Yay. date. Right? So, so excited. excited. So yeah. excited about that. Uh, so with its, with its uh, 6.5 meter primary mirror, this is going to be the biggest such observatory put in space. And the entire process to put that together is incredibly complex. It's pushing NASA to its limits. In fact, they're, they're announcing like sort some little delays as well. This is just such a monumental uh, thing that they're doing here. And it's, it's hard to imagine creating something even bigger. I mean, what would it take to create an observatory like that that's 15 meters or 30 meters using the same process we use today? It's almost unimaginable. It would just take way too long, be way too expensive. Uh, so perhaps this autonomous swarm technique could do it. Uh, so Mason Peck, former chief technology officer at NASA. Yeah, I was a CTO at NASA. What a nice job that must have been. So he goes, if Professor Savransky proves the feasibility of creating a large space telescope from tiny pieces, he'll change how we explore space. We'll be able to afford to see farther and better than ever, maybe even to the surface of an extrasolar planet. Uh, that would be truly amazing. Imagine seeing the surface of a, of a planet that's light years away. Incredible. So that's one. The other one that really caught my attention is called, uh, Proxima. P-R-O-C-S-I-M-A. Oh, uh, that, not if that, Proxima. No, right. If that makes you think of Proxima Centauri, it should. So the idea here is, uh, essentially a major conceptual advance for interstellar beamed propulsion which may increase the period of acceleration by a factor of 10,000, allowing a one-kilogram probe to go to the closest star, Proxima Centauri, at 10% the speed of light, arriving there in 42 years. So now we've talked about beam propulsion, I think, only once or twice. It essentially uses a laser to push a very small probe to incredible velocities. So the problem with beam propulsion is that, like I said, you need a huge beam to accelerate a tiny mass on the order of grams if you want to go to another star within a lifetime. To deal with that, you need to deal with beam spreading, right? From diffraction or, or thermal effects. You, um, one of the hallmarks of a laser light is what? That it's, that it's essentially a straight line. It doesn't diverge like a flashlight. It's, it's collimated light. But, the, but there's no way around diffracting light, even, even with a laser. If you saw, if you shine a laser on the moon, um, it could be miles wide, uh, when it, when it finally reaches the moon. So you've got this spreading beam, even with, even with an efficient laser, um, and that's going to limit the efficiency of a beam that needs to focus on a solar sail for as long as possible, right? So to minimize the spread, these researchers think that if you combine, I'll get this, if you combine a laser beam with a neutral particle beam, so you got two different beams uh, working together. So you could essentially, they think, tailor them to interact with each other in such a way to greatly minimize any diffraction spreading or, or thermal spreading. So the beam becomes, at that point, it becomes what's called a soliton. 
so now the Proxima, the name Proxima actually makes a lot of sense. And I'm sure they had many meetings coming up with this. So Proxima kind of is a mishmash of the words photon particle, optically coupled, soliton, interstellar mission accelerator. So what? that's how they could. Yes, they and it, all those words make sense. All those words, <laughs> all those words are the key words that make up this entire concept. So bravo to the to the team. Gosh, that, that I have a hard this. time remembering what laser stands for. Yeah. That <laughs> that's too easy. So, so what happens then? So what happens then is that uh, you tr- you train the beam exactly where you need it for much longer to accelerate the probe for a period of time that's ten thousand times longer than a really powerful laser. But spreading beam can do. Now, my plan, what I just said right here, this is ma- this is primarily for interstellar travel. You could use similar concepts for traveling within a solar system, but it would be very different or significantly different from what I just described. So, so this is for interstellar travel, or they're saying that you could possibly use it to travel to the Oort cloud of uh, of comets about a light year out, or you could. They said you could use it to send a probe to the solar gravitational lens. Point, which is at 500 AUs from the sun. Oh so, boy. so there you go. Two really fascinating concepts that are going to have a bunch of money thrown at it over the next nine months to see if they could really, how feasible they really are. And hopefully they both get to phase two. Yeah. Neat. Cool stuff. All right, Evan, you know, it's amazing. It's 2018 and there's still more analysis of the JFK assassination and the headshot. Tell us about this new article. You didn't think that they would be able to find anything new or different, but you know what? It's endless. Technology has a way of sort of catching up to these these things. It does. (laughs) One of the long supposed and deeply held pieces of the conspiracy theory puzzle subsumes that there were multiple shooters firing at Kennedy that day. And the most popular of the multiple shooter theory is that there was a shooter on the infamous Grassy Knoll. The collective body of quality evidence, and I'll stress the word quality evidence, that has accumulated in the 54 years since it happened has led us to this conclusion, that Lee Harvey Oswald, by his own design and his own hand, used his own rifle to fatally shoot President Kennedy from his sniper's nest on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository Building. Right. However, JFK conspiracy theorists are, shall we say, less than impressed with the cumulative body of evidence, which leads to that conclusion. Much of their denial is based on what they believe they are seeing in the Zapruder film. Now, if you remember, and really, how can any of us forget, there is eight millimeter footage captured by Abraham Zapruder the moment President Kennedy's fatal headshot occurred, along with the seconds before and afterwards. It's 18 seconds of some of the most incredible history ever captured on film, and it's known as the Zapruder film. The fatal headshot, where the film shows the president's head moving back and to the left. Back back, and to the left. Back Back and to the left, left. yep. Yep. Repeat after me. And as any Hollywood director or other person with a vivid imagination will tell you, it's indicative of a shot fired from the front right side of Kennedy, right? And what was immediately to the front right side of Kennedy's head? That's right, the grassy grassy knoll. knoll. That's how that works. And while the conspiracy theories will not necessarily dismiss Lee Harvey Oswald's role in the killing, it's the headshot itself, the back and to the left. That means the shot came from the forward and to the right of Kennedy's head for many conspiracy theorists, that's a cornerstone of their assassination worldview. Now, the explanation for why the head thrust back into the left has long since been established, and that is 
and it's been tested and verified many times by scientists, ballistic experts, and others, is that that's the exit wound. It's the explosion that causes the head to move backwards because of that thrust from the exit wound. But once again, conspiracy theorists disagree with that. They don't like that conclusion. However, because reasons, so they don't have yeah. now, reasons. You can actually see a jet of brain tissue shoot out of Kennedy's head for thirty feet. Oh, oh God! You know, oh. forward and to the right, which of course is what is accelerating the head back and to the left. It, it would have to if you see that jet of material shooting out. So it's QED. I mean, it really is there on film and they don't really have an explanation for that. There's no doubt, no doubt about it. But there's news from this past week, Steve. New yep. news. A study conducted by Dr. Nicholas Nally has been published in the open access journal Helion. He's a senior research scientist at IMSG. IMSG is self-described as a leader in environmental, scientific, and technical support products and services. Now, Dr. Nally of IMSG conducted an in-depth analysis of the Zapruder film footage. And what is not at all surprising is that his tests yield the same results as the official autopsy findings and everything else we know about it, that the JFK kill shot was the result of a bullet wound shot to the back of his head. But what is surprising is that Dr. Malley has narrowed in on a piece of evidence that no one else seems to have noticed before. His analysis was able to detect a forward head snap at the moment the fatal of the fatal bullet impact. And when analyzed using fundamental classic mecha classical mechanics, the forward head snap, which is visible in the film, provides proof, absolute concrete proof, beyond, I mean, beyond the proof we already have, that JFK was shot in the head from behind. And here's how the article about it at fizz.org described it. Dr. Malley developed a simple one-dimensional gunshot wound dynamics model to explain the movements observed in the film. The model makes explicit calculations of the forward head snap that occurred before JFK's head moved back and to the left after the gunshot. To do this, the model uses known parameters from the crime scene, including bullet mass, the speed and diameter of the bullet, camera shutter frequency, and autopsy measurements. And it's the first time this aspect of the case has been considered so thoroughly and quantitatively. And he says in his conclusion remarks from the actual paper that he did that it's important, this is Dr. Malley, it is an important one given that it's hypothesized the existence of a shooter in front of the limousine has been the primary physical foundation for virtually all conspiracy conjectures to date on the topic. While the simple one-dimensional physical model physical models presented in the paper were derived for application to this particular study, the underlying physical principles provide an approximate quantitative description of the interaction between high-speed projectile, which is slowed by an intervening atmosphere, and a heterogeneous body compromised of bone and visoelastic tissue, the human head, and may also form a basic conceptual basis for understanding the wounding mechanics involved in such interactions. So, he honed in on something that had not been analyzed before. And with it, I think essentially, at least for us who understand really what has been going on that day, for once and for all, sort of put to bed the notion that somebody hit Kennedy from the front, from the grassy knoll. Now, you can't, from this, and he admits to it in the paper, you can't exclude, this is not a way, that you're not looking to, ex to debunk a conspiracy theory with this. But what you can say definitely is that he was not shot in the front of the head. And that's mm -hmm. the cornerstone for a lot of conspiracy theorists 
having yeah. to do with the JFK assassination. It's more evidence that the headshot, the fatal headshot, came from behind. It came right. from the direction of the book depository. Uh, there was the fa- the failure analysis group also looked in detail at all the shots um, in terms of you know the the Zapruder, Zapruder film evidence, and they came to the same conclusion. If you trace them, you know them back. They they all sort of point in the rough direction of the sniper's nest, you know, right? The origin yep. of the bullets. So and you know this guy went as far like he tracked every bit of debris from Kennedy's head and tracked where they went in the subsequent frames, mm-hmm. uh, and like d- did the physics. You know, he did all the math to say you know, how much material and the momentum and everything. It it all seems to check out, but and I and I I shared it with Gerald Posner, who we've had on the show before. Yeah. He wrote the book uh, Case Closed, and he did you know his own investigation certainly for a long time into this. And he says it's certainly the most thorough, it's very uh, thorough. analysis of this part of the of the assassination that he's ever seen. And he and, and Gerald's been on this for you know the better part of two three decades. Yeah. I remember, I'm sure I mentioned on the show, I had a lecture from a neurosurgeon like 25 years ago that went over the Zapruder film and showed, came to the same conclusion. He didn't notice the forward head snap. Again, that's the new bit, but he did show how the film conclusively shows that, you know, the jet of brain tissue would have sent the, the head back. Uh, and that actually is consistent with the trajectory of the bullet from behind. Because uh, you know the way it went through the skull, the front of the skull came off, and so that was the whole, you know, the amount of energy you impart to the brain tissue from the right. bullet. Because the the brain is you know the living brain, Jay right is pulsating Jello. Remember that? Jay? <laughs> <laughs> you can't prove that. And <laughs> you impart this massive amount of energy to that mass of Jello, and then you make a hole for it to exit out of. Of course, it's all going to go there. And then, you know, the rest is just physics. So anyway, this is just adding one more bit to yep. what, we, what we already knew. And, of course, it's not going to change the mind of a single conspiracy theorist. Um, I, have, I have a couple of secondary questions here. Uh, I wonder if any of you guys know the answers. So why did Jackie Kevin Kennedy crawl across the back of the car? Was she trying to get to safety? No. She was She was trying to to uh, help get pieces of his head i think right well yeah, yeah the yeah, two was she holding his head back together the two things one was he, he was he she could have been reaching to help one of the uh agents onto the back of the vehicle but she also could have been reaching to grab the back of his head you know that yeah. was laying there because after just, that she held it yeah so because like in a, in a situation like that you are not processing information rationally no way you're mm-hmm. reacting really to a to a surreal sequence of events in real time and your brain can't process it all so you you think and do weird shit you know yeah, yeah i mean i'm sure like it, you it, it, like the, your lizard brain like you're helping like i need to put his head back together yeah no like, i this remember is how i save him you know i like yeah. to think of myself as a rational person but you know when my wife delivered our second child in our living room uh, uh, yeah, unexpectedly, that. my first thought was, I have to put it back in so I could take her to the hospital so she could deliver it there. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> that thought actually that. went through my head. At, and for, you're a doctor. For a second, you know what I mean? Until I realized, no, no, that's not happening. I have to deal with this here, you know? <laughs> yeah. But like, your brain gets overloaded very easily with situations like that. And then weird shit, you think. So she's like, oh, I, I have to get his head right, back. Right, she was sort of scrambling. Well, no, yeah, you're like on, on autopilot. You just... You, you're not thinking rationally, but but of course, conspiracy theorists 
interpret like to interpret everything as if it was a rational deliberate decision and so they have yeah. they can infer motivation from it you know in a way yeah. and, and they never accept as an explanation people just do weird unexplained shit you know that's just never an, an explanation well, yeah, it they're going to they're going to you know shape everything to uh, yeah. help them support yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, whatever they're, they're all ideas. it's all <laughs> monday morning quarterbacking too yeah, like yeah, none yeah. of it is yeah thinking did, about the psychology my second question is did kennedy die immediately with the headshot yeah 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 the first shot that hit him hit him in the upper spine he had a reaction to that he stiffened up as a reaction yeah and his um, arms elevated yeah as a it, result. it's it's a known it's a, it's a known reaction. neurological phenomenon to the acute trauma the, the, and but he also he had a, a back brace on because he had a really bad back and that made him stiff. That so that's disease, I think. yeah. So he couldn't bend over. You know, he he was sort of mm. propped up, but he but you could see his arms extend in a, in in a typical uh, way that you would expect from a uh, an injury. There you also see his tie sort of flip up a little bit from the mm-hmm. exit wound. Would Again, that have killed him? Uh, he probably he would have been paralyzed. He might have survived that. But how long was the was the between that bullet and the next one. It was just a few seconds. Three seconds. Yeah. yeah. So he wouldn't that I mean, that's not even processing speed yeah. time. Like Yeah, he was barely able to process like what just happened. He probably didn't even feel anything. And then it was probably just very loud and very frantic and then he was dead. And then it's lights out. And then it's the yeah. end of right, the Sopranos. Then... Remember the end of the Sopranos? That's what he experienced. Oh, they're sitting there in the restaurant, right? Yeah. 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 And everything goes black. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Spoiler alert. Yeah. It's, it's been enough time. It's been I, enough time. Been enough yeah. time. <laughs> Perry went to his grave in denial that Tony Soprano died at the end of that scene. Oh, yeah, that was a big... Oh, wow, we had discussions about that. Oh, that's yeah. hilarious. Mm. Couldn't take it. Nope. <laughs> okay, thanks, Evan. Yep. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Bombas Socks. Guys, I am loving, loving my Bomba socks. How about you? We all love them. I was at work the other day, and I was in my suit. I got complimented by my client. Guess what? (laughs) What? (laughs) They noticed my socks, and they really admired them. Liked how they looked, and I had to stop and give them the the elevator pitch about the Bomba socks. And I think they're going to go out and buy their (laughs) own now. Do you guys know what I I do? I have a lot of socks. I've been looking in my drawer, looking specifically. (laughs) No, I've got a lot of socks. I look specifically for them. Where is it? Where are they? I get pissed off when there's none left in my drawer. Like, damn, I got I to gotta wash them. <laughs> I think what I like the most about Bomba socks is that, you know, I wear the ankle socks and the, the hidden socks because I wear sneakers almost every day. And I can wear them both with my casual clothes, like when I want to look cool, or I can wear them when I go to the gym because they're so freaking comfortable. They have that blister tab in the back. They have that arch support, that kind of extra support band around the middle and they have stay up technology so i can be working out for an hour straight or running on the elliptical and i don't even feel them you guys did you know that for every bombas purchase you make bombas donates a pair of socks to someone in need and so far they've donated over seven million pairs of socks it's amazing. So buy your new socks at bombas.com slash skeptics today and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash skeptics for 20% off. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. Uh, all right, Kara, I understand I could grow my own brain in a jar now. 
Uh, you might not be able to, but um, <laughs> I'm getting a little ahead the, of myself. The appropriate tool, <laughs> I think, can do it. <laughs> ahead of yourself. Uh, Salk Institute published an article um, where Rusty Gage and his colleague. What a great name, by the way, Rusty Gage. Just a Rusty Gage. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to see here. Um, where he and his colleagues were working with brain organoids. These are not new, but they do carry with them, I think, some new ethical questions. And what they did is they took these brain organoids and they transplanted them into human brains. So, or I'm sorry, into mouse brains. They're human brain organoids transplanted them into mouse brains. Let's break all this down real quick. An organoid is different from a network. An organoid is different from a brain. An organoid is not a brain in a jar. It's not a fully functional brain. It's basically a tiny little blob of brain that does have lots of cells, but those cells are sort of connected to each other but disconnected from anything else. So there's different levels that we can study uh, neuronal activity, right? We can look at things in vivo inside of the living organism, the, the, the living human being, the living animal. It's quite hard to look at in vivo research in a human being, however, unless we're just looking at like brain waves, for example, using EEG, or if we're using fMRI technology, CT technology, and there we're really only looking at like big structural things. It's very hard to see what's happening at the cellular level in a human being because that would be way too invasive. So we have all these different ways that we can do it in animals. There are like little windows you can use to look into brains. There are patch clamping things where you can like uh, you can like suck onto an individual cell and look at its electrical activity. There's ways to look at the chemistry, all that good stuff. And then now there's these really cool things that are called organoids. So it's kind of an in-between level. It tells you a lot more than what individual cells can tell you. It tells you a lot more even than what like a flat kind of artificial network can tell you. Um, but it tells you a lot less than what a whole brain can tell you. It's it's a glob of cells. I think the one in this article, Ed describes it as being lentil-sized. Okay, two to three million cells. Now, the interesting thing, though, is that these researchers used human pluripotent cells to make this organoid. So that's a little interesting, right? Like this is a human organoid. It's human tissue. It's not conscious. Nobody thinks it's conscious. It is not able to sense. Nobody thinks that this is a sensory organ. This is just independent brain cells that are connected to themselves. What these researchers did is they successfully transplanted it into a mouse brain. And when they did that, they saw that this graft differentiated, it matured, it underwent gliogenesis, meaning new glial cells, new of these support cells grew, the microglia were integrated, and axons within the, this organoid grew into other areas of the host brain. After that, they used some special imaging techniques, two-photon imaging, and they were able to see that there were functional neuronal networks and blood vessels within these graphs. They also were able to do some extracellular recording and use some optogenetic technology to see that the graft to the host seemed to make functional synapses and these cells were firing and affecting the pre-existing mouse cells. So this is a big deal. And let's talk about what cool stuff can happen with this because yeah, a lot of yeah, times we talk know. about mouse models, right? We're like, oh, mouse models. Mouse models are great. And then we always have to go, eh, it's a mouse. Yeah. 
It's not a human, (laughs) right? And then we do these human like ex vivo or like in vitro things where we're like, yeah, it's human tissue, but it's not in a brain. Not a mini brain, not a brain in a jar. I love this analogy that Ed Yong used. They are emphatically not brains in jars. They are not mini brains either in the same way that a leaf is not a mini plant and a doorknob is not a mini building. (laughs) It is a piece, a tiny piece of a brain. That said, they're useful. Scientists can look at some models of disorders. Scientists have actually used um, organoids to induce a genetic mutation that's similar to microcephaly. And those organoids were small and they were like, wow, that's cool. This mutation led the organoids to be small too. We could learn why. This paper spawned so much um, conversation that there was a team of ethicists that actually wrote something of a response. It's called The Ethics of Experimenting with Human Brain Tissue. And it was a comment in Nature that was published on April 25th, where they really dug deep into like, what is an organoid? What does this represent? Is it ethical to put these into animals? At what point, how many cells need to be together before they can self-organize and start actually resembling parts of a brain? Where is that gray area? Where is that cutoff? When are we talking about consciousness? When are we talking about perception? Because here's an interesting thing. Researchers have taken that organoid and they've attached retinal cells to it and it fired as if it were receiving light. So, okay, is it perceiving What does that really mean? It's one thing to say these are cells that are kind of in isolation. It's another thing to now take these cells that are in isolation and connect them to functioning systems. Because, of course, a brain by itself is not anything. The brain in the jar we have not accomplished yet by any stretch of the imagination. You need eyes. You need ears. You need a nose. You need a mouth. You need all of these perceptual organs to – to perceive, A, but then for that perception to be sort of, quote unquote, downloaded into thought and into memory. Like you wipe somebody's memories completely, ultimately, like their ability to make new memories and their ability to maintain new old memories. And like, what does that do to consciousness, right? Like that's a big, big issue. We really do in in many ways need memory and we need perception to be able to really have what we start thinking of as consciousness. That said, We haven't cracked consciousness by any stretch. We have no idea how that gestalt of consciousness works. You get these individual neurons together and eventually something greater than the whole starts to happen. And that's still like the holy grail in many ways of neuroscience. That said, maybe we are not, you know, effectively producing conscious brain tissue yet. And I think almost every biologist involved in this and almost every biologist commenting on it says kind of without a doubt, no, these things aren't conscious. Like, don't worry about that yet. But we're kind of on the precipice of something. Like, I don't know when it's going to happen that we're going to be able to induce consciousness in in kind of this in in vitro or this in vivo grafted transplanted tissue but when it happens that's a whole can of ethical worms that we're going to have to tackle and the time to talk about that is right now and i think steve uh skimming your blog post it's similar outcome in similar conversations of a separate experiment yeah so there's two yeah there's two basic things i think we're talking about here one is i guess there could be more than two but you know one what you're talking about is at how much brain tissue crosses that threshold into being Mm -hmm. considered a brain you know an entity and 
And the, the one I wrote about was they took a, they actually just took a pig's head from a slaughterhouse that was dead for four hours. And then they tried to see if they could get any cellular activity to go on. And they got a little bit, but it really wasn't a lot. Sure. Um, okay. The, the, there was the EEG activity was, was flatlined, but they did see, they did get some cellular activity. Not surprising. But yeah, I mean, that happens in vitro with a, yeah. like a very, very basic, uh, monolayer cell culture. That said, it it's like kindling is what they call it. Like it fires in this way that looks like a seizure. It's not organized firing. But it raised the question, What? let's say what if somebody dies, you take their brain and then you wake it up. And, yeah. And it is a brain. It's a, you, you didn't start with a little piece. You started, you started with a whole human brain. Oh, and, so one is kind of building up from the bottom. The other is coming down from the top. Yeah. But and then you just put it, in a, you put it in a jar. You, you give it blood flow. You give it nutrients and oxygen. And, and then now you have a brain capable of being conscious. But it, it's in a jar. It has no sensory input. But what if you give it sensory input? Or maybe you give it sensory input or you it's try to – You hook it up into a brain-machine interface or whatever. Because that's actually the easy part. It seems like the part that we've already hacked is the part where we can like modulate or we can reproduce vision really well now with like optogenetics. We're doing it with all sorts of implants. It, it, it can work, absolutely. Um, obviously, there's a lot of technical aspects to it. But but theoretically, we, we know that we can get brains to talk to machines and, and vice versa. So it does raise the – Technical prospect of like putting your brain into a robot. Yep, that could work someday. It's you know that's just a matter of technology. Yeah, yeah. But the ethics of that, you know, what I said in my blog is you have to treat a brain as a person. That yeah. brain is that person, and we and we might have to change our legal definitions of death and personhood and whatever. Because right now, legally, it's a corpse. You know what I mean? The the law it does not account for the brain in a jar. But the minute that that brain has is no longer brain dead yeah is it, it a corpse right yeah it's so it, it shouldn't it's like, be yeah it shouldn't be and you used to always talk about on the show whenever we talk about those like scammy head transplants like these re- yeah. and you're like it's a body transplant <laughs> right <laughs> it's not a head transplant like the <laughs> head, head trans- is where all the stuff is <laughs> sounds so much cooler than body transplant <laughs> right <laughs> it makes but a yeah. better headline Oh, oh Jay, Jay, why and did so, you tell yeah. me to say that? What are you doing to me? But when we're talking about taking pluripotent cells and growing a brain from scratch, who is there to consent? Yeah, I think we're a long way from that, the bottom up. I think so too. Approach, but, but now's yes. the time to think about it, right? Yeah. And it, it overlaps with the AI discussion. You know, when mm-hmm. is, does an AI sure. get to the point where it has rights? You know, we have to treat it as oh, a yeah. sentient entity. Especially oh, if it's a hybrid-like organism, right? Yeah. If so it really is, bionic. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a few weeks since we said that. Let's move on. Jay, it's Who's That Noisy Time? Last week, I played this noisy. Uh, tooth being pulled from person. <laughs> it sounds really. organic to me, like biological, like some sort of organism doing something. Ian Hollis uh, said, this sounds like an insect, probably a beetle. I'm going to guess it's a death watch beetle because I don't think Jay could resist playing a sound from a bug with a name like that. <laughs> death watch. <laughs> Is that true? Is that right? I, I got to look it up. No, that's not right. But uh, yeah. 
biological, and I read that one first because you said it was a bug. Ryan said, hey, gang, long-time listener, first-time guesser. This, the noise of this week kind of sounds like some kind of tape being pulled off the roll, a close-up of that sound, if you will. For example, packing tape or duct tape. Oh, yeah, it had that a little bit of that vibe. Not correct. Uh, another person <laughs> named E-Hoss e. said, is it an abacus? Oh. No. Um, okay. I don't think that's what an abacus sounds like. So uh, did I tell you last week that the person who sent in the noisy, their name is Pablo Honey 2? <gasps> no, you didn't tell us like that. Like the Radiohead album? Yeah, but do you know where Radiohead got Pablo Honey from? Where? The Jerky Boys. No <gasps> way. Oh, no way. Really? Awesome. Yes. yes, they did. Was Pablo Honey like a character? It, it's one bit that they did. Hilarious. Where like, like, um, the, the call is that it's an old woman calling up her son. She's like, Pablo, are you washing your ass, honey? <laughs> oh, my <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So, Pablo Honey, thank you for sending that in. Um, this one is, it's the loudest animal. Oh, the mantis shrimp? Incorrect, my friend. The sperm whale is the loudest animal on the planet wow. with a 236 decibel click. That's a sperm whale? Yep. That's cool. Whoa. But it's also a bit cetacean-y like a dolphin. You're right. I kind of feel yeah. that. It yeah, is. it does have that dolphin click. So uh, no winners this week. Whoa. I got a new sound for you this week uh, sent in by a listener named Randy Resnick. Thank you, Randy. <laughs> Email me at with any cool noises that you had from this week or the guests at WTN at the org. All right. Thanks, Jay. All right. We're going to do one quick email. Kara, this is a correction of your discussion of annealing. Yes. Uh, we had about a thousand people write in. We had like four people write in, but okay. Well, okay. All right. <laughs> it felt like a thousand. Say yep. to, to make some corrections about our discussion of annealing as it applies to metallurgy specifically. Yes, specifically. What happened? So I used the word tempering early on um, when I was describing the top line definitions of annealing. Many, many dictionaries use tempering as a kind of a synonym. Specifically, as it applies to metallurgy, there are two very specific steps. First, it's annealed, and then it is tempered. Yeah, it is all about the microstructure of the steel. And the as, grains. As, as, as some of the emailers, very helpful emailers pointed out, the reason why steel is such an incredibly cool substance and it's so useful and why it is so ubiquitous in our civilization is because it is so versatile. You can give it a lot of different properties, mm-hmm. not only by the alloys that you make, you know, the, the elements you put into it to make different alloys, right? So you can, you can put titanium in there or whatever. You can put different things in the iron to make a different alloy, but also by how you heat treat it. And that's become a science unto itself, right? And the usual oh, sure. variables are – how how much do you heat it uh, to what how temperature fast you heat it. for how long yeah how fast and then more importantly how fast do you allow it to cool yeah now annealing involves heating the steel high enough temperature to basically reset it to reset the the crystalline structure within the metal so you're basically removing any of any stress any cracks any you mm-hmm. know flaws in the steel you ba- you make it so that it's very very soft and ductile it could be worked 
at that point. So if you're going to, before you're going to machine it or cold forge it or whatever, you, you'd want to anneal it. And then once you get it into the shape that you want it, uh, depending on what you want to do with, with what you're making out of the steel, you may want to harden it. And you could do that's where the tempering comes into, into place. So you tempering it usually involves heating it to a lower temperature, not high enough to anneal it, but a lower temperature. And then usually then cooling it down again at a very specific rate, depending on exactly the properties you're going for, but it's usually much quicker uh, than annealing. Annealing, you want it to cool really slowly. So like you might put it in sand so it insulates it, or you might allow it to cool down with the forge. Like you leave it in the forge and let the whole thing cool down. So like over a really long period of time, yeah, you want it to be very, very slow. But tempering, you cool it very, very quickly. And that, yeah, that that hardens it, uh, which makes it uh, hard but brittle. But you could also toughen the steel by different, you know, heating and cooling uh, permutations, right? And toughening it, makes it less brittle, right? So, so Steve, you, is that why they would uh, put the sword in a slave's body and let it yeah. cool with the body? Yeah, well, uh. that's, that's quenching what? it, right? So that's... that That's, oh, that's a, like when you dunk it in the in the. That bucket. would be like dumping it into a bucket of water. It's cooling it quickly to harden it. Quickly. Yeah. yeah and but you that's, don't do that when you anneal. You cool it really slowly. Yeah, really slowly is annealing, yeah. And uh, so the... So with glass, it's interesting because even though there is a specific difference between annealed and tempered glass, mostly what the glass looks like after it's broken, both annealing and tempering glass makes it stronger and mm-hmm. it makes it less likely to crack extemporaneously. Less yeah. And so interesting. So um, annealed glass breaks into larger shards that can be dangerous. So sometimes people like to temper glass, which breaks it into the teeny tiny pieces if it gets broken. But by and large, you will see that annealing glass and tempering glass is used as a synonymous term, which is really confusing. But definitely not with steel. Yeah. But it's really interesting how many basic dictionaries say um, as either their first or second definition, you know, this process by which you heat it up and then you cool it slowly in order to improve, you know, or change the structure, blah, blah, blah. And then it'll be like semicolon, tempering. Yeah. Well, so somebody, really somebody points it out, Dic- dictionaries yeah. are a terrible place to go for a technical definition. For a technical definition. Uh, That's yeah. what Let's move on. We have a good interview coming up if you wanted to know about audio pseudoscience. Uh, and as I do point out for... Uh, those people who are premium members, the complete uncut full interview is available as premium content, and we have a shorter excerpt for it in the show for you here. Joining us now is Ethan Weiner. Ethan, welcome to the Skeptic's Guide. Thank you very much. Uh, Ethan, you are an audio expert, and actually you are a member of the New England Skeptical Society from back in the day. Old school. <laughs> old school. In you fact, you, you published uh, you, you published a couple hundred articles, you were saying, but I, I'm sure your most influential article was published in the prestigious the New England Journal of Skepticism yes. called <laughs> A Skeptic's Call to Action. I, I remember that article very well, but uh, we yeah we were discussing audio issues recently on the show, and somebody sent me your name as a as a great interview. Like God, I really recognize that name. I wonder who that is because I meet so many people over the years. I just forget who's who, you know. Uh, and then you reminded me of your of our old contact over the New England Skeptical Society. So that's great. But I think the the topic I'd like to initially discuss with you is 
audio pseudoscience or how consumers get ripped off by being told crazy shit about audio. Right. Well, that's a yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, I see myself as a consumerist as much as an audio expert because this is about consumerism. It's, you know, it's it's like selling, a, you know, a lemon of a car or a car with bad features or claiming uh, unrealistic mileage. Uh, and there are all kinds of claims. And, of course, there's a lot of legitimate companies, you know, the, the big companies, the big ones in the hi-fi world, you know, Sony, Panasonic. I mean, there's a lot of them, the names that you know. Uh, aren't going to lie when if they say this amplifier puts out 100 watts per channel with 0.1% distortion, you can trust that. Uh, sometimes with specs, they're not complete. You know, a lot of times they'll give distortion at one watt and they'll give frequency response at, you know, half a watt or whatever. But mostly you can trust that. But there is a huge amount of snake oil in outright bullshit. I mean, just lying stuff. I would I would say that that hearing and, and hearing perception is probably the, the most frail, uh, fragile of the human senses. Mm -hmm. Anybody can tell standard definition TV uh, from HD, even from 10 feet away. I mean, it's sharper, it's clearer, uh, it's more in focus. But with audio, uh, if you hear something and then you wait 10 seconds because you changed a wire or something, somebody says, oh, this $100 wire is better than the $3 wire that came with your MP3 player. After 10 seconds, it's hard to remember the exact tonality of what you heard. And this is well known mm -hmm. among, you know, real audio engineers. But for some reason, the hi-fi crowd and even some professional engineers who should know better, uh, just they just fall for stuff. And there's a whole pile of people that are willing to, uh, you know, to swoop in and take advantage of that. And, and I'm sure that some of these, we call them snake oil salesmen, I'm sure uh, some of them know that they're uh, lying. Yeah. But a lot of them probably believe their own nonsense. You know, they, they, they really believe it. It's, it's hard to know. Yeah, they fall for their own placebo effects, audio placebo. Right. So what are we talking about here? Like, can you give us a, an example? Well, yeah. Uh, the, the, fir the first real scam that I'm aware of, and this goes back to the 70s and maybe even earlier, is expensive speaker wire. Now, mm -hmm. oh, yeah. a loudspeaker wire is, has a very simple task. It has to be thick enough to carry enough current. So if it's a you know a 100 watt per channel receiver, that's a fair amount of current. So you need like number 16 wire or something pretty heavy if you're going 10 feet. If you're going 50 feet, you need something really heavy. If you're going four feet, it doesn't have to be so heavy. But this is all well known. It's very easy to calculate. There are several uh, tables and calculators online. Just put in speaker wire calculator and you'll get like 10 of them that will tell you for this many watts at eight ohms, you know, you, you need at least number 12 wire, number 14, whatever. Uh, and wire is cheap. I mean, you go to Home Depot and you get that stuff for, you know, 20 cents a foot, 50 cents a foot, depending on the wire. Uh, but there are companies that will sell you speaker wire for $100. $200, $2,000, and the wire is absolutely no better. It's all sold on expectation and, you know, fanciful thinking. And they pretend to be really honest. Say, look, buy it. if you don't like it, if you don't hear a difference, bring it back. Absolutely. We'll give you your money back. And they will, I'm sure. But, you know, people want it to be better than, you know, the wire they got at Home Depot or yeah. whatever. So that was the first scam. And then uh, the signal wires, uh, which are a little more complicated with RCA connectors. So we call them RCA wires. Though the hi-fi industry, they call them interconnects rather than, well, it's a wire. You know, oh, no, it's an interconnect. But, you know, it's it has very simple 
a very simple job. And as long as it's not, you know, more than 10 or 15 feet, pretty much any wire will do. And the $3 wire, the wire that comes for free with your CD player to hook up to your receiver is all that's needed. And you can spend again into the thousands of dollars on wires sold with a promise that, oh, it's better. The clarity, the presence, the, the stage, staging, sound staging, all the imaging, all this, a lot of times are just made up words, uh, you know, they say are better. But what's the most ridiculous of all of these wire scams is, and this is more recent, probably the most recent, is replacement power cords. Now, if you think about it, the power cord just has to get AC from the outlet to your thing. And that's even simpler than speaker wire because it only has to handle 60 hertz. It doesn't have to handle high frequencies and really low frequencies. Mm -hmm. And it only has to, you know, if it's a CD player, it's, it draws like 12 watts or something. You know, it doesn't have to be a heavy cord. And again, the, I think the most expensive power cord I'm aware of costs $20,000. But there's a lot of them for $1,000, $500, uh, even, you know, $100. So it's like an impulse purchase when you're buying your $4,000 stereo. At the stereo store, the guy, the salesperson says, well, look, you know, if you really want to get to full value, you're going to have to upgrade your wires. And they even will tell you, well, you want, you should spend 10% of your budget on wires. And, and this is just pure bullshit. I mean, this is just a, a complete outright scam. At the end of the day, it's just copper and insulation, right? Yes. And, you know, with signal wires, with, you know, the, with the RCA wires that actually carry the audio output from your, you know, CD player to your receiver or whatever, uh, the capacitance of the wire is a factor. And that's why I say, you know, if it's 10 or 15 feet or less, any, pretty much any wire is going to work. But really high, and, and most audio equipment can drive, you know, 10, 15, even 50 feet sometimes of, of wire without losing high frequencies. But in an extreme case with a not very good wire, and if it's really long and it's kind of a cheap piece of consumer equipment as opposed to professional, maybe you might lose a little bit of the highest frequencies, a little bit of the sizzle, but probably not. I've never actually seen that with, and I have a, you know, I have like 40 wires sitting around in my bag of wires and they're all, you know, stuff that came for free with you know, CD players or yeah. a cable box. That's wires is just not something consumers need to worry about. Only in the most extreme case where you have to run a wire across a very long distance, could you theoretically lose some higher frequencies, but even then maybe not. And you, and most people wouldn't notice it. So just don't worry about it. Exactly. That's a perfect sum summary. And, you know, there's also digital signals that travel down these RCA wires. And in that case, only one is needed for one, two, or even five channel surround. It all goes down this one wire. It's digital. And that actually works at a higher frequency. But with digital audio, it either gets to the other end or it doesn't. If there's something wrong because the wire is too long, there's too much capacitance, or the driving amplifier, the circuit that's driving the wire can't handle, you know, whatever, you'll hear sputtering sounds and dropouts or it just won't work at all. But with, you know, the, the idea that you lose subtle clarity or fullness. And, you know, and fullness is a frequency response. You can easily measure that. So digital audio is all or nothing. It, it doesn't affect the quality of the sound. It's going to drop out or it's getting to the other end. That, that's right. You'll hear obvious dropouts and spitty, you know, hissy, you know, funny yeah. sounds and stuff. And uh, Or if it, if it works at all, it's probably working perfectly fine. So, Ethan, just as a visual, if we were to say, okay, like the really expensive monster cable or whatever, like some of these companies are, I've seen some that are like thick, like as thick as a, I mean, it, the circumference of a dime, say, you know, it's like a substantial right, yeah. cable. Now, as an example, how thin of a wire could you use that would be just as good? Now, if we're talking for speakers, it depends on how many watts 
uh, are, well, it really depends on how many amps, amperes is going on the wire and how long it is and how much loss you're willing to accept. I mean, if you used a fairly thin wire, you might lose a tiny bit of volume, probably not going to change the sound much, but you might lose a tiny bit of volume. But all that, that stuff, I call them garden hose wires. All of that stuff is nonsense. And, and if you really do have a long run that you need, like you're, you know, you're running, you know, out to your back porch and it's 50, 50 feet and you have a hi-fi out there when you have company, uh, you could use Romex wire, you know, the, the stuff they use in the walls for power, for electricity, you know, number 12 or something wire is plenty. And, and those are, you know, not that thick. The Romex wire is, you know, it's pretty basic. There's nothing special about it. Oh yeah, all of this stuff is basic. It's just all that matters is the resistance. There's there also there's also a phenomenon called skin effect, where very high frequencies tend to travel on the outside surface of the wire, and not go on the inside. So you actually need slightly heavier wire. In fact, with radio transmitters, uh, when they have a like a fifty a five hundred foot run out to the tower from the transmitter, you know, at fifty thousand watts, instead of using like big half inch thick copper solid copper. They just use copper pipe, like water pipe in your house, because all the stuff in the middle wouldn't get used anyway. But none of that has anything to do with audio frequencies. That stuff starts at, you know, much, much higher frequencies than anybody can hear. Right. So, and again, so like the monster cables, the really big cables, if you're setting up a stereo in your home, it's it's wasted. Just regular wire will do. It, a- absolutely. Just, just regular old zip cord or, you, you know, wire of the appropriate thing. And, you know, the, you know, the Romex I was mentioning is stiff because it's not stranded wire. So maybe that's not something you'd want in a portable installation. But, you know, there's lots of wire. You know, you can get an extension, you know, a hundred foot extension cord of, you know, meant for like power tools. And that's really heavy. You know, like Home Depot, just cut off the ends and use that wire or buy it by the foot. I mean, there's lots and lots of wire that costs a buck a foot or less <laughs> and, and is absolutely fine for speakers. So, but it's it's really easy to see how consumers would get conned by this because with a lot of electronic equipment specifically and a lot of that kind of technical gear, like I'm a photographer, it's certainly true of lenses and a, and a lot of camera things. And certainly we're buying microphones for our show. For a lot of things, it does seem like you basically get what you pay for. You know, if you're spending $600 on a microphone, you're getting a microphone that's about twice as good as the $300 microphone that you're getting. Well, you right? know, that, that used to be true. That's not true anymore. That all changed about 10 or 15 years ago when China started producing really good stuff. And you can now get a, uh, Audio Technica is a good example. In fact, I'm using an Audio, Tech, Audio Technica brand mic that I bought quite a while ago for $300. And I, when I got that, I bought, took it from the store with a $2,000 mic and I think it was a $3,000 mic. And I told the guy, I'm going to buy one of these. This is when I was playing the cello and, and I really wanted a really good microphone. And I had my cello teacher come over with a really fine instrument. It's like a Stradivarius, not an, pedigree, but it's really, really good. And we both played both of our cellos. We both listened and we picked this mic that cost 350 bucks over the other two. And Audio Technica has a mic that they sell for hundred dollars called the 2020. And it's, I'm telling you, it's as good as the $5,000 stuff. Oh my God. Uh, it, yeah. it, it really is. Uh, it wasn't the case when I started doing this stuff professionally in the late 1970s, you really did have to spend a lot of money. There was no such thing as high quality, inexpensive stuff. Uh, mm. but, but there, there is now, but inexpensive is 
a hundred to three hundred dollars. If you're getting a twenty dollar micro computer microphone, you're going right. to absolutely notice that that low yes, quality. Yes, y- yes, you will. And and I agree with you by the way about the, the the camera stuff because you know good lenses really do cost more. You're not going to get a great value for fifty bucks. If you have to pay fifteen hundred, that's what it really costs. And I do understand that. But what uh, and you can easily see the difference if you just put them side by side. But with audio, not so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's what makes it really complicated for the consumer because there are some things where it's worth paying the extra money and other things where it isn't. And you have to have a lot of technical expertise to know the difference. So it's good to have simple rules like wires. Don't worry about it. As cheap as you can, you're going to be fine. Microphones, eh, you've got to spend a couple hundred dollars to get into the big leagues. And then beyond that, it's probably not worth it. Would you say that's a good summary? Yes, but you know, there are so many, you know, every, I get all the audio magazines and every, issue, there's like four new microphones from various companies. So there are literally thousands of models and I know five or six or seven of them and there's thousands. So I can't vouch for every $200 mic and say, yes, this is as good as a $3,000 Neumann U87. I I mean, I don't know. I imagine there's probably some crappy stuff. I know in the really super high-end audiophile world, some of the most expensive stuff is the worst. It's the least competent. It's, you know, somebody gets plans for a tube amplifier kit, and it works. And he doesn't know how to measure it, but it works. He gets sound out of it. He says, I could go into business. And he buys ads in Stereophile magazine, sells it for $4,000, and sells a couple. There's a lot of that stuff (laughs) out there. I don't know how many of the big microphone companies are like that. So so I can't say unequivocally that once you spend $200, you're going to get as good as it gets. But if you pay attention... You can certainly get – you don't have to spend much more than that. It sounds like the bottom line is in the audio world, the way it is today, if you're going to invest any serious money, you should do your research ahead of time. Uh, read reviews, right? I mean, is there good sources for, for consumers to get a pretty good handle on what they're getting so they don't get ripped off? Well, you know, that's another problem. Most of the magazines – in fact, I would say pretty much all of the magazines – are completely full of shit and are absolutely just as clueless as the consumers. And uh, some of them oh, are even worse than that. Uh, and I'll, I'll, if I can, if I'm allowed to mention a specific magazine by name, uh, Stereophile is, has probably, is probably responsible for so much damage over the last 20 years because they have created and propagated so many myths and so much nonsense. Uh, of things that don't matter, but they say it does matter, all to appease their advertisers and so, to sell expensive stuff. There's a lot of online magazines, you know, hi-fi magazines, but even the pro audio magazines, Mix Magazine is the probably the longest current professional recording studio type magazine. They've been around since at least the early 80s, if not late 70s. And their technical editor a couple of years ago did a whole op-ed about the importance of power wires. And I, I couldn't believe it. Dude, you should know better than this. I mean, this is just complete nonsense. And every issue – and I've started writing letters to the editor of some of the magazines when I see really egregious stuff saying, you know, I can't believe you said – and I say it nicely. But it's basically, I can't believe you made such a huge gaffe. Here's the truth and here's how it really works. Do they respond? Uh, uh, yeah. One of the magazines, Recording Magazine, uh, has actually printed my letters a few times. And the other ones, you know, I, I'll write to the editor because I know them and I'll just email them. And they'll say, yeah, 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 you're right. I should have said that better or whatever. 
But, so usually they acknowledge it. Yeah, but but, <laughs> but it's you know unfortunately it just seems like it's all being driven by money. It it is, and that's why I said at the beginning this is really a consumer issue. And there are so many uh, uh, boogeymen with audio. There's something called phase shift, which is not audible. It's not a problem. It occurs in all audio equipment, and you know in modest amounts, and even in large amounts you can't hear it. It doesn't matter. I have several videos on YouTube uh, that are videos of workshops I put on for the AES, the Audio Engineering Society. They have shows around the world, and I have given a couple presentations when they're in New York, and I made videos of two of them. And so I demonstrate, here's what phase shift sounds like. Can't hear it, can you? Uh, another one is uh, something called jitter, which affects uh, digital audio. And it's a timing error. You know, with, with old record players, if the hole wasn't centered, you'd hear it go, you know, like once per revolution, the pitch would go up a little and down a little. And analog tape, tape recorders, have a thing called flutter, where it's a kind of a f- fluttery speed. With digital audio, you have this thing called jitter. And it's absolutely not audible. It's never a problem. It never was a problem. Even the earliest digital stuff in the early 1980s didn't have a problem with jitter. But magazines like Stereophile and Mix and all of the magazines, both pro audio and hi-fi, all and, the, and I'm sure these guys absolutely believe it. They absolutely believe it because one writes it and the other one reads it. And the next thing you know, it's like the Fox News echo chamber. Yeah, so that brings up another issue. So there are some things like ridiculously expensive wires. And you didn't mention, but I know I read in your articles about the gold-plated connectors. That's another scam, right? That um, they don't they don't make any difference to the sound. Then there are other areas where it might make a difference to the sound, but nobody can hear it. And certainly the average music listener in their home isn't going to hear it. And so you're, you're wasting your money for something that is only a theoretical difference, but not something that you can perceive. Right. Well, it's right because you can only hear so much uh, with, with modern test equipment. You can measure all kinds of things that could never be heard. Uh, they can measure 0.0001% distortion. Which is like, you know, the distortion components are like 100 dB softer, which is like really soft compared to the music. Nobody could possibly hear that, uh, in the, especially in the presence of the music. But even if the, you took away the music and left just that 0.000 whatever percent distortion, you'd have to turn the volume up like way up unnaturally and put your ear to the speaker in order to hear it. So nobody could hear that even though it could be measured. And there are other things that are like that. Noises, artifacts, and various things that can be measured, but you can't hear it. Nobody could hear it. It's not even like you could sort of hear it if you're really careful or a trained listener. And now, of course, there are some things that are at the edge of audibility and a trained listener could hear it. One example is uh, what's called lossy compression, which is how they make the MP3 files. And if it's severe compression, like they used to have, you know, 10 years ago when we had modems and they would have to make music files really small, you could hear that swishy, swirly kind of a sound. And once you know what to listen for, even when it's not so severe, a trained listener could pick that out and say, yeah, I can hear that. But, uh, but these days with, with the high bit rates, I don't, you know, they've been done lots of tests and even skilled listeners, you know, are unable to hear stuff. Yeah, what what we did for the show, and we've done this over the years when we were buying equipment, like so I would – when I was f- first uh, doing the show, I I ripped it down to d- different compression ratios like 56-bit, 48, whatever. I did – and I just did a whole bunch of different ones. And then I listened to every one to see like where I could start to hear the difference. Right, very good. And then I had, it at, I had it at the smallest size – where it sounded fine, you know, where any smaller than that, I would start to hear some distortion. And then, J- JD, remember when we were buying 
our Focusrite yeah. things yep. where we, we bought one setup and then we did like a bunch of test recordings with different setups to see if we could hear the difference or not. And, and we would only buy the equipment if we could actually hear the difference. And it does matter. I mean, the external, I do think you tell me what you think, Ethan, but I do think an external sound card does make a difference because the internal sound cards have more noise around them. We, well, we well, they usually, yeah, they usually do. And usually the internal ones don't really have professional microphone preamps, you know, they're yeah. meant for like a computer speaker and for grandma on Skype. And as long as it's intelligible, uh, and yeah, and I have a focus, right? That's what I'm using right now is a, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. As we settled right. upon. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I just want to mention one thing when you're asking about, is there any legitimate place you can get good information? And I would be remiss if I didn't mention my own audio expert book, which is really unique because it busts all of these myths. It takes this stuff head on and it comes with, uh, with a bunch of online content, a lot of wave files that actually demonstrate all this stuff and, and let you hear what, what can be done. It explains how audio equipment really works, not just, well, here's how to use an equalizer, but it does that, but that also tells you, well, here's how they're Here's actually some simple computer code showing how you implement an equalizer and digital signal processing. And here's some, you know, simple schematics of basic, you know, filters and stuff so that people really can become an expert. And, and I, you know, I don't pull any punches. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. you know, if, if something is, is, is nonsense, I say this is nonsense. So this, what's the name of the book again? It's called The Audio Expert. Look it up on Amazon. They'll get it. But I also have, if you go to my website, ethanweiner.com, uh, right there on the homepage, there's a box that says, you know, read all about the book. And there's a very detailed description that goes into much more of what's in the book, uh, than what's on Amazon. You can see the whole table of contents and. All right, Ethan, take care. Thanks, Ethan. All right, great guys. Thanks. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Lisa Mattresses. Lisa is a direct-to-consumer online mattress brand. What that means is that you save money because they're not paying their dealers anything. They're, you're just buying it from them directly. Another thing I love about Lisa is for every 10 mattresses that they sell, they donate one to a shelter through their 110 program. Mm. Yeah, they also plant one tree for every mattress sold and donate 1% of each employee's time to volunteer for local causes. And that's on top of the mattress itself being so comfortable and such a good value. I love how they layer their foam like a delicious dessert. They got that two-inch <laughs> Avena foam on top. Then they got the two-inch memory foam in the middle. And then the most delicious layer is the six-inch dense core support foam. Oh, man, it's so good. And we want SGU listeners to try a Lisa mattress in your home 100 nights risk-free. It's available in the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, and Germany online with free shipping, and it's 100% American-made. It ships compressed in a box right to your door. Or you can go try it at the Lisa Dream Gallery in Soho, New York City, and Virginia Beach, and over 80 West Elm stores nationwide. You can get $125 off and a free pillow when you go to leesa.com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. And I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. This week, we have a theme, and we have four no. items. Oh, no. wow. <laughs> oh, for Christ's sake. Extra chances to lose. Great. Yes, absolutely. Okay. The theme is mistletoe. What? It's not Christmas. It's mistletoe. It doesn't matter. All right. Let's do it. 
right. <laughs> hey, Bob, what'd you read today? <laughs> <laughs> Betty, it wasn't mistletoe. <laughs> All right. Mistletoe, mistletoe is kind of like a word like sizzle chest. <laughs> yes. It has the same number of syllables, Jay. Congratulations. <laughs> okay, here we go. Item number one. Mistletoe berries are toxic to most mammal and bird species. Item number two. European mistletoe is the only multicellular organism known to lack complex one proteins essential for mitochondrial production of ATP. Item number three, the name mistletoe derives from the Anglo-Saxon words missile and tan, translating to dung on a twig. (laughs) And item number four, there are 1,300 species of mistletoe worldwide. Evan, go first. I'll take them in reverse order. Uh, 1,300 species of mistletoe worldwide. Sure. Why not? 1,300. Nice number. It might even be a little more diverse than that. Those are only 1,300 we know of. Next, the name mistletoe derives from the Anglo-Saxon words mistle and tan, dung on a twig. (laughs) Basically a (laughs) shit stick, right? Um, So, (laughs) Okay, sure. I, I don't know. The, the origin of the word mistletoe, who really knows that off the top of their head? The, the second one you presented to us. The only multicellular organism known to lack complex one bro- proteins, hmm, essential for mitochondrial production of ATP. Uh, Kara chortled at this one as if to say, what the living heck is, are we supposed to do with that? Huh? Really? <laughs> so I'm, I was amused by that, which leads me to the first one you mentioned about being toxic to most mammal and bird species. And we have this concept in our human brains that mistletoe is this dangerous poison and we kiss under it in Christmas time and haha, that's like a juxtaposition of some sort. I'll say that one's the fiction. It's probably not toxic to most mammal and bird species. All right, Kara. I do think mistletoe is toxic. I thought that they were it was really toxic. But maybe birds can eat it, no problem. Evan, you're confusing me. Uh European mistletoe is the I didn't even know there was a European mistletoe. It's the only multicellular known to lack complex one proteins, essential for mitochondrial production of ATP. So how does it make energy? I mean Good obviously question. Yeah, like obviously it photosynthesizes and then it takes that sugar but then it still has to go through that chain reaction to produce the atp through respiration i don't like it um mistletoe derives from the anglo-saxon words missile and tan translating to dung on a twig i don't know it doesn't (laughs) kind of look like dingleberries I'll give you that. <laughs> 1,300 species of mistletoe. What if there were 13,000? Nah. Or 13. What if there were 13? 130. <laughs> oh, there could only be 130. Crap. It can be only one. I have narrowed it down to the first clue and the last clue. The berries are toxic to most mammal and bird species, and there are 1,300 species of mistletoe. Well, oh, you had a problem with two as well. No, I – well, I do, but I feel like that's – that's going to be trick, like right? the amazing thing about it, right? Is that it has some secondary way that it does it and it like baffled scientists and now they've discovered it. Because um, usually when he does these, there's some sort of hook and that seems to be like the science clue. <laughs> like none of the other ones are really sciencey. Um, they're more just like, this is a fact about mistletoe that you could Google. 
I'm going to go with Evan because there's strength in numbers and say even though I, I am pretty sure we're not supposed to eat mistletoe and neither are dogs and cats. Like it's actually really dangerous to eat mistletoe berries. Maybe like birds are totally awesome at eating mistletoe berries. Sure. So yeah, that's the fiction. All right, Bob. I mean the biggest problem I have is with is with number two there, the ATP. ATP, adenosine triphosphate, that's an energy currency of life, all life, except one type of mistletoe. Now, I'm not familiar with complex one proteins. But it says that they are essential for mitochondrial well, production. Previously of ATP. known to be essential, like essential in every other species, maybe. So it means, yeah, but that the way that's worded, though, it really kind of restricts what it could do there. It's it's like it's like it, it's like it, it has it produces energy in a completely different way. Screw it! What the hell? I mean, gives a crap about mistletoe. I'm just going to say <laughs> ATP fiction. <laughs> Whatever. Uh. <laughs> Okay, Jay. All right. Well, um, there are not – I think the last one was 1,300 species. I think that one is science because there is not 1,301 of anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well-reasoned. Well-reasoned. Yes. <laughs> thank you, Evan. Well-reasoned. <laughs> I mean, this dung, dung on a twig <laughs> – <laughs> it's like if Steve. Don't like, you just want that to be true? Yeah, I do. I, that, you know, I'm going to have to just say that, that because of I, I desire it to be true, therefore it is true. <laughs> there's a there's an informal logic logical fallacy in yep. there somewhere. European mistletoe, my friend. Okay, I mean, I, I'm hearing what Bob is is griping about over here. <laughs> the thing that's really sticking in my craw here is that if if mistletoe berries. Now, Steve doesn't say a specific mistletoe. He just says mistletoe berries in general. All 1,300 species. Yes. Mm. They are toxic to most mammals and bird species, which would mean that, like you said, Kara, that most that all most of those 1,300, why would there be so many variations of it if they're all toxic? You know, birds mm. are a huge spreader of things like that are berry-based fruits. I mean, they eat the fruit and they poop the seeds out later, and that's how, the, you know, those plants – that is how that works. Yeah, I just don't think that one is science. I, I'm, I'm going to join W E. Join us, Bob. You pick number two, man. Yeah, I'm picking Bob, number you're one. separate from us. Yeah, so, Bob, join me. You're in. <laughs> All right, so let's take these in reverse order, since you guys are clustered around one and two. Okay. There are 1,300 species of mistletoe worldwide. You all think this one is science, and this one is science. Yes. There's more species of everything than you think there are. And that's <laughs> why I qualified it. We only and, know the 1,300 And species. most of the things we think of as species are actually a genus or even a higher order. You know what I mean? Like you oh, think they're very smart. Especially yes. plants and insects. Yeah. Yeah. Generally speaking, like even like a zebra is not a thing. It's a genus. There's, there are several species of, of zebra or, or anything. Rhinoceros too. Yeah. And so, yeah. So there's 1,300 species. That's a lot. That is definitely a lot. It's a successful a successful plant, which we will be getting to in a moment. Why that? Kara, you know what they? You know what a really old <laughs> version of mistletoe was called? Uh oh, what? Cannonball toe. What? Missile what? cannonball. I get it. Nothing. Uh, and then nothing. In the future, they're going to be laser. I thought missile meant poop. That was when terrible. People, Jay. When people say what after <laughs> yeah, I try to tell a joke, <laughs> when they say what, I immediately feel like an ass. Yeah, you die a no, that's a good what? instinct, Jay. <laughs> no. Jay, do not let that deter you from future attempts. Thank you, Evan. The United States and Canada are home to more than thirty species. Hawaii has another six. So where's where the all other, the rest of them? And yeah, where's the other the rest of them around the world? Twenty species are endangered. 
Yeah, but there's, you know, there's 1,300 all over <laughs> yeah, the place. Yeah, right? I guess most yeah. of them are in Europe and Asia. There's um, mistletoe all, all over the place. All over <laughs> the place. So let's go to number two. The name mistletoe derives from the Anglo-Saxon words missile and tan, translating to dung on a twig. You guys <laughs> all think that shit stick is also science. <laughs> and... This one is science. Hey, yes. yes. We're halfway there. <laughs> so why do they call it that? Why is that the why is it called? Cuz it smells thing? like Cause poop? It, no. Nope. Cuz it looks like little dingleberries. Nope. Oh. nope. Cuz um, it like cuz they drop off like little poopies? They nope. use it as toilet paper? Nope. Oh my god. No, it's poop on a twig. Why else would you call it poop on a twig if it didn't look or act like poop on a oh, twig? Oh, I know why, Steve. Why? Ber- because animals would eat it and the plants would have a lot of poop underneath the plant. Because they would go there, eat it, and poop while they're eating. Well, but birds then it's not poop on, the twig. on it. Because, because there's, always, there's often a lot of bird poop on the mistletoe. And but that's because they eat it. Oh, which Hang means. On. Oh, joy. <laughs> oh, boy, Bob. Ha-ha. We're getting the carrot. We're Bob. getting there. It was Ha-ha. the special sauce, the special sauce to make it palatable. And and it, the thinking used to be, which is not correct, was that mistletoes would grow specifically in animal poop. Oh, so, okay. But that is oh, not weird. correct. So, okay. But that false belief of it, oh, it grows wherever the birds are crapping. Well, birds crap everywhere. Uh, that's a, that that's confusing true. causation with correlation. Yes, they confuse causation with correlation. And yeah, like mm-hmm. the word missile is like in not only Anglo-Saxon, but very similar in all of the languages of that part of the world at the time. Like it's Norwegian, you know, Norse and Germanic or whatever. It's all very similar, you know, derivative words. Uh, okay, let's go back to number two. I'm going to torture you a little bit with, with two and one though. All right, um, of course you are. So I'm going to give you some other other facts about mistletoe that oh, might boy. put this into, into perspective. So mistletoe often spread their seeds by the berries exploding and the speeds shooting out. The dwarf mistletoe. That's awesome. The dwarf mistletoe has been clocked at sixty miles per hour, shooting its speeds out up to fifty feet. What doing what? what? That's awesome. Shooting How? what? This the seed. I guess it just gets plump to the point that it explodes, and then it shoots the <laughs> seed out fifty feet. Well, where That's does the cool. energy come from? Not ATP. Up into the left. <laughs> 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 so. <laughs> That's how they spread their seeds by Whoa. shooting Crap, them. So, it's so birds not don't from have to poop. eat them. Damn. There's oh, also no. many families of <laughs> plants that are all toxic. You know what I mean? That's why like, they call it mistletoe, right. oh, which means one is now going to be science because he's talking. Wait. Hang on. Now, yeah, don't something he's you to don't confuse us. I'm trying to confuse you. Something you <laughs> don't know about mistletoe, Bob, which might put. That you one and two also into more context. Did you oh guys know? Did yeah. you know mm-hmm. that all mistletoe are parasites? Yeah. What are they against parasites? who? Who are they eating? Wow. Other uh, trees. Oh, trees. those. Uh, see, I never liked mistletoe. Uh, mistletoe yeah. grow in oh, these little no, they, balls. So they use the complex one proteins of the trees. They ha-ha. usurp them. Ha ha. Maybe. <laughs> so. They are a crap com- on a stick. They are common <laughs> locations. <laughs> the, the the bunches of mistletoe, like basically just stuck on a tree, right? Because it's a parasite on a tree. It's called a witch's broom, and it's oh, a very cool. it's and and lots of birds will nest in the witch's broom of mistletoe. Mm. Um, and squirrels have also been seen to nest there. 
And they also are important sources of nectar for butterflies and bees. Butterflies will often lay their eggs on mistletoe. Mistletoes have an important effect on the ecosystem of a forest where there are lots of mistletoe. There are many more hollows in trees Hollow. for birds that nest in hollows and other animals. They they do shorten the lifespan of the tree because they suck the life out of it because they're parasites. They are hemi- hemiparasites because they can, they can do their own photosynthesis. So they do some of their energy from the photosynthesis and some from their parasitic activity on the host plant. So with that said, with the shooting seeds, but they're parasites, which could impact either one of these two, let's go back to number two. European mistletoe was the only multicellular <sighs> organism known to lack complex one proteins. He's, <laughs> He's laughing already. For mitochondrial production of ATP because Bob sees the handwriting on the wall. Uh, because this, one, <laughs> this one is science. Yeah. Uh, yes. oh, sorry, so, Bobby. Sorry, previous Bob. studies sorry, showed that there is a massive loss of genes in mistletoe, which is, has already been observed as a general phenomenon in parasites. Parasites tend to lose genes. Uh. They tend to become very simplified in their metabolism, their physiology. <sighs> they become they actually evolve in the direction of less complexity. It's one of the examples that Stephen Jay Gould used to give of not all things are becoming more complex over evolutionary time. Parasites are mm. a notable exception. And so at one point they they discovered a few years ago that the European mistletoe is lacking in in pretty much all of its mitochondrial genes. Mm. And so the question is, are, were they all lo- translocated to the, the, universe? the nuclear DNA? <laughs> yeah, so is it just all nuclear oh, DNA? Oh, are they there somewhere are else? Are they there? Yeah, they but they're, not, they're, they're not in the mitochondria, so are they in the nuclear DNA? And, right. and this study is a follow-up, and they go, no, they just completely lack complex one proteins, which are important and necessary for the functioning of the mitochondria. So clearly, they're doing something else. They, they don't know yet what they're doing. They're, they have some alternate energy production pathway that probably Damn. is tied up with their parasitism. It's probably only a viable pathway for a parasite like like the mistletoe, but they haven't figured that's the next step now is well, what are they, where are they getting their energy from? Because they're only getting part of their energy from the, from the plant and getting, they are still undergoing photosynthesis because they're only the hemi-parasites. Okay, that means that mistletoe berries are toxic to most mammal and bird species is the fiction. They are horribly toxic it. to humans. People should not eat them. But a lot of bird and mammal species will feed upon mistletoe. Lots of birds, squirrels, deer, other mammals. So they a lot of animals eat the mistletoe berries, just not people. People should are they, not. Are they eat ever them. killed by the exploding mm-hmm. berries? Well, yeah, right? so the be- lot. So that's the dwarf. Going <laughs> well, to keep talking about him, isn't it? So he? think about it. Though. So think about if you're in a forest, right, and you yeah. have a, cl- a cluster, you know, a cluster of mistletoe on one tree, mm-hmm. and it shoots seeds out in every yeah. direction up to fifty feet. It's going to stick to the next tree over, and so it's just spreading tree to tree by shooting its seeds out. But also, other again, there's thirteen hundred species. Other species just have very sticky seeds. So when animals come in to feed on the berries, they some of the seeds will stick to them and then will drop off somewhere else. And as I said, a lot of animals nest in the mistletoe and the seeds will just shoot out and stick to the animals and get carried away as well. 
So that's their seed dispersal mechanism. It's more about the shooting of the seeds than the passing it through the poop. But but some animal, a lot of animals do eat the mistletoe seeds. They are an important Stupid feast. Poop. They're an important part of the ecosystem, and they are an important food source where they are common for the local fauna. Wow. And why do we have mistletoe in the house at Christmas? So that, that um, tradition goes back thousands to, of years. To the actually. Druids. That goes back, yeah. That goes back a long way. the The first instant instance actually may be in um, Greece, not even uh, with the Druids. Uh, um, in terms of using it, the, the the connection of mistletoe with fertility, because those Greeks, you know, were all about fertility. Uh, the the kissing custom can date back to at least the 1500s in Europe. It was practiced in the early United States. Washington Irving referred to it in Christmas Eve from his 1820 collection of essays. So that specific tradition goes back to uh, 1500s in Europe. Neat. Yeah. And it's very pretty. I've always loved it. The red and green, the bright red and dark green, you know, that is obviously very, we associate that color combination with Christmas, but I think it's a Mm -hmm. very beautiful, uh, natural uh, look to it. You know, the mistletoe, very pretty. So good job, guys. Bob, you know, you you went for my my diversion. Hey, Bob, you know. That was the fake out. You reacted exactly. Slain by the false dichotomy again. Yeah. <laughs> I think what, what we're discovering this year is that I, I'm really good at fooling Bob. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's my theory, and I'm sticking to it. Because <laughs> I, I am attracted to the ones that Bob falls for, I think, because Bob and I might think a lot alike. Hmm. And uh, Evan and Kara have been doing a good job sniffing out. I got I to gotta mix it up because you guys really did totally pick out my strategy. The, the Crap. The European mistletoe was the news item. Like I, I mean, I built the theme around that news item. Yes, I knew it. That one felt like a science. Yeah, yeah it did. <laughs> yeah, it did. It was. That was the science. Evan, story. he's going to start splitting us up. Yeah. Uh-oh. Well, uh, yeah. Well, well, at least, we'll at least he it. mentioned we'll your name. I wasn't even mentioned. I, I don't. <laughs> was, and then Jay also ran. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. Good, Jay good was boy, in there Jay. somewhere too. Good job. <laughs> Thumbs up. Oh shit! <laughs> this will be forever go down as Bob's shit stick. Uh, shit stick episode. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Evan, give us a quote. Oh to boy, close out thirteen years. Of I know. Thirteen years, and what I did is I went back through my emails, and I have a lot of them. And I wanted to look for a quote that a listener suggested that we wound up not using and got buried away somewhere. I'm I'm pulling it back out. So uh, Paul Leclerc, if you're still listening, uh, suggested uh, some Frank Zappa quotes uh, a long time ago, and I don't know that we've quoted Frank Zappa. I looked it up and didn't see it, so we're going to do it tonight. For Paul, and this request comes seven years after you asked for it, Paul. So here it is. <laughs> Reality is what it is, not what you want it to be. Frank Zappa. Very pithy. Very pithy. Straightforward. Yeah. And Frank Zappa, he was a fine skeptic. Yep. Yeah, that that is a good overall summary of the skeptical it is, movement. Right, it is. Right. Right. Reality is yeah. what it is, baby. It's not what you want it to be. You've got to filter yeah. out all of the what you want it to be and, and you know come up with a process to figure out what it is. And, what and, it is... And George Hobb is, is a is a student of Frank Zappa. That is yes, to say, he's, he's an a, enthusiast. If you have any specific questions regarding Frank Zappa, my go-to would be George Hobb. Hey, Steve. Yes. Jennifer Willette. She's a keynote. It's Texas. 
That's she's, right. She's great. Oh, I Nexus love 2018. Ted. She's a science writer and editor, author of four books, contributor to the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, L.A. Times, and a lot more. And she Absolutely. judo flipped me once. She, she did. did. Absolutely, she did, she did. Yes. in a demonstration. She, I got. She flipped me. It was awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So she will be giving our keynote on Saturday, July 14th at 5 p.m. You got to come to Nexus this year. We have an amazing lineup. We really, really put a lot of energy and time into picking our speakers. And we ended up with one of the best conference lineups that we've had in a very long time. So please come. You can go to NECSS.org for all the information. Yeah, I'm doing my workshop this year, Jay. I chose my topic. I'm, it's going to be how to interpret the scientific literature oh my and gosh, science that's news great. stories and oh, science news cool. stories. So important. Yeah, it's going to be good. Yeah, yeah, that'll be really helpful. Yeah, if I, I need, happen to I need not that be – too. Uh, yeah, I'll sit in on that if I'm not running my own conference, my own uh, yeah, workshop. Your own workshop. Time. Your own yeah. conference. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm doing a conference all by myself that weekend. Uh, I bought my J-Con. plane ticket yesterday. Yes. Cool. Yes. So – I will definitely be we there We will now. all be there. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you all for joining me this week and for the last 13 years. Yes, sure, Steve. Steve. It's been a great. Nice, Steve. Thanks, Steve. Good I work. wasn't there for 13, but a solid three. three. Yeah. Yes, Kara, you're on <laughs> three. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible. And remember, Bombas socks made from premium cotton. Bombas stays warm in the winter and cool in the summer. And every pair comes with a built-in blister tab, innovative arch support, stay-up technology, and seamless toe. With many colors, patterns, lengths, and styles, Bombas look great in the gym, at the office, and out on the town. And for every Bombas purchase you make, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need. They've donated over 7 million pairs of socks so far. Buy your new socks at bombas.com slash skeptics today and get 20% off your first purchase.